From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, a moment of silence before this episode begins. This morning's gospel lesson um, continues on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for a week or so. Uh, I think the next two or three weeks of the lectionary sort of keep us here. Uh, Last week we opened um, in chapter 5 where Jesus addresses a crowd that's gathered around him as he's gone up on a hill and he opens with the famous Beatitudes where he tells us that uh, often the people we think are cursed in this life are actually blessed. Uh, That blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, uh, right? And and as he names these early blessings over these folks, um, when he comes to the end of that, he begins to preach uh, this sermon. And he starts by telling those who've gathered about their identity, about who they are. And so we pick up there this morning, uh, chapter 5, verses 13, and we're going to make our way through verse 20. So if you would, hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who's in heaven. Don't even begin to think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So uh, this week, as uh, I began to kind of sit with this text, and it, it seemed to me that so much of the emphasis of it was around identity, around who we understand ourselves to be, who, who we believe God has named us as, uh, what our role is in the world. I thought it would be an interesting exercise to just sort of poll whoever was watching us digitally, and I texted some folks, and just to kind of get enough of a sample size, and just said, um, who are Christians, and what do they do? right? Who are Christians and what do they do? Every time I ask that question, I'm sorry, I cannot stop hearing who is your daddy and what does he do? And 
if you're wondering where that reference came from, and you probably are if you're under 40, it's from Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a very old and not good movie. But anyway, um, who, who are Christians? Who do, they cons- who do they understand themselves to be? Uh, here on the most famous sermon Jesus ever gave, he, he lays out, this is who I see you as. This is who I believe you to be. This is what I want you to do in the world. And so it makes sense that we start with, well, did we hear it right? Who do we understand ourselves to be? And what do we do in the world? And so uh, we put a little thing on Instagram and we just said, who are Christians and what do they do? And then in asterisk, little parentheses, wrong answers only. Um, And my hunch is the wrong answers might painfully be the right ones. And so here's some of what you all said. Actually, one of my favorite answers, who are Christians? What do they do? Came from one of our band members. I'm not going to tell you who. They said, uh, Christians are the names of designers and athletes that we don't like, like Leitner and Dior. <laughs> I don't know. Go devils. Okay. Here, here are some other answers. Uh, Christians are people who go to church. Who are you? We, we are the people who go to church. We are people who read the Bible, uh, who pray before meals. Christians are the folks who wear giant t-shirts over their swimsuits. who eat jello with floating fruit in it. Christians are the people who say things like, oh my gosh. Uh, Christians are those who are suspicious of science. And sadly, we can now add history too. Uh, Christians are the people who tell everyone else how to live, especially who you can sleep with. Christians are the Karens of the world. And I apologize to the Karens in the room. No, your parents did not see this coming. (laughs) Christians have all the answers. Christians are partisan and proud. Christians, Christians are Ned Flanders. And once again, this is painful realization for those of us 40 and above. I asked one of our younger staff members this week, I said, you know who Ned Flanders is, right? They're like, sort of. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, guys, Ned Flanders is Homer Simpson's evangelical next door neighbor. Uh, And The Simpsons is the greatest cartoon ever made. So (laughs) now you know what you need to do the rest of today. Uh, Ned Flanders is this... um, caricature, but sometimes almost too close to reality of how the world, uh, how our neighbors, uh, how culture experiences those of us who consider ourselves to be Christian. If you want to kind of understand just the spirit of Ned Flanders, Homer Simpson one time said, that guy just makes me feel so damn guilty. Um, that's, that's how we're perceived. That's who we are. When you stop and you look for who are Christians and what do they do, um, this, this is what comes up. Is it trying to make sense out of this thread if we were to get really, really honest about it? Um, one of the deepest thinkers I know, uh, Time Magazine considered him one of the greatest theologians of the century, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, who we don't talk enough about here, but spent his career teaching at Duke Divinity School, still very much alive, still agitating. But he one time said kind of prophetically about this, that Christians are the people who would rather kill than be killed. You think about that for a second, as we gather around our central icon of a cross, 
a Savior who gave his life away. Somehow, in the last 2,000 years, we've become the people who are known as those who would rather kill than be killed. How, how do you make sense of that? How, how do you pull those two things together? Uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen kind of the He Gets Us commercials. They're starting to pop up now, right? This is a giant campaign uh, that exists to try the best they can to redeem uh, the brand of Jesus because of this very thing. That, that Jesus says, this is who you are and this is who you're going to be in the world. And the whole world looks back and goes, we'll tell you who you are and it isn't any of that, right? Somehow your people have gotten so detached from your story that you can't even figure out how the two go together anymore. And so now a billion dollar campaign over the next three years, this He Gets Us campaign is spending a billion dollars in ads. There'll be two in the Super Bowl, $20 million worth of ads just in the Super Bowl, a minute to try and retell the story, to reorient people to the good news of why anybody would ever consider following Jesus. I think as much as I appreciate the effort and some of these commercials actually are really moving, um, that we've got a deeper problem than PR, right? This is not something a commercial is going to fix for us. And it's a bit of an inside job. And so this morning, just for a few moments, I, I want us to center ourselves on Jesus' words here when he tells us who we are. In fact, in the message paraphrase in verse 13, this is how Eugene Peterson puts it. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, now let me tell you who you are. Now, let me tell you who you are. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. It's one of those things, as many times as I've heard it um, and read it in the scriptures, for whatever reason, I've never really stopped to consider. I'm like, that's actually like a common phrase. Like that, people still use that. They use that like in, in the world all the time, like in our regular life. Somebody says, that person's salt of the earth. Uh, my neighbor's the salt of the earth. Uh, this person at church I met is salt of the earth. The person I work with, right? And I was like, where does this phrase even come from? Like, where, turns out it came from Jesus, best we can tell. Every sort of like uh, thing that I look at online says this common phrase is attributed to scripture in Matthew 5, where Jesus says to some people, you're the salt of the earth. Well, when in our common use of it, we're not too far from it. When we say that somebody's the salt of the earth, we, we're kind of saying a couple things. One, um, they've got some common sense. Uh, they're generally kind. Uh, if we're going to be really transparent, we typically talk about people being the salt of the earth uh, more around blue-collar folks than we do white-collar folks, right? Um, it, it's this idea of somebody who's generous and kind and good in the world um, who, who isn't necessarily associated with great power. We would just sort of say, this is a person who's salt of the earth. And that's not far from some of the intention of what Jesus is saying here at the beginning uh, in fact, it's uh, important that we remember who he's talking to. You know, these chapter headings and verses, they weren't always there. We talk about that from time to time. They didn't pop up till the 13th century. So imagine the story being passed around for a thousand years and people going, it's like sort of two-thirds of the way, maybe uh, a little less, a little more, right? Those are just put there so we could find our way, but, but you can ignore them, right? And so... We start in chapter 5, verse 1, but this whole passage actually starts in chapter 4, 23, when we're told who he's talking to. And in chapter 4, it says that news spread about Jesus all over Syria, and people brought to him all those who had various kinds of diseases, those in pain, those possessed by demons, those with epilepsy, 
those who were paralyzed, and he healed them. And it says that when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on a mountain, he sat down, and he began to teach them, saying, here's his audience. Those who were sick, those who were in pain, those who were wrestling with some significant demons, he looks out at these people and he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. You're overseen, overlooked, you're blue collar at best, right? But I see kindness and goodness in you. He, first thing that Jesus says, he affirms their value, says you are valuable. In fact, that's the biggest takeaway from calling somebody salt of the earth, especially 2,000 years ago, is that salt was seen as one of the most precious commodities, right? Uh, in fact, um, Roman soldiers were paid their wages in salt. It's why we now, when you get paid, we call it a salary. It comes from the word salt, right? So Jesus is looking at these people who the world says are not valuable, who are not significant or not worth anything. And he looks them in the eyes and he says, let me tell you who you are. You're as valuable as a paycheck. You are salary. You are salt of the earth. You matter. You're significant. And I think for some of us this morning, that may be enough. That may just be all that we need to hear. That may be the good news for us. So much of the pain, and maybe even the pain that comes out sideways, is because we, we don't believe the truth of what Jesus starts with, that, that you are valuable, that you matter. This, this is who we understand ourselves to be, people made in the image of God. This is who we understand everyone to be, people made in the image of God. This is who Christians should be, people who look at those around them and said, you are valuable. You're, you're the most precious commodity that we have in this life is each other. That's where Jesus starts. But I think it is interesting to sort of tease out why was salt so precious? Why, why would someone be paid their wages in it, right? What's so significant about salt? Uh, wh what are its attributes? So um, some of this you surely already know, but salt was used to uh, heal wounds, right? Uh, salt was used to soften things, to preserve uh, meat, food, items. Uh, it could purify things. It enhanced whatever was there, especially when it comes to eating. It could enhance the flavors. In fact, here's another fun language game for you. The word salad just means salted food, right? So when I sit down with my steak, I am eating my salad, right? So here we are. This is that the salt enhances. It brings out the flavors. It, it elicits goodness out of this life. It finds it and elevates it, right? It creates thirst in us, desire, longing for something more, something beautiful. And this is why people would receive their wages in salt. Um, it was for this very reason. This is why it was so precious. This is who, by the way, God says that we are. That we're the people who are valuable, and because we know that, our function in the world will be to be on the lookout for opportunities of healing, where we might soften the world's hard edges, where we might purify that which has become corrupt, where we might enhance and elicit goodness out of the place where it doesn't seem like it can be found, where we'll, we'll stir up thirst in the world for something better and more beautiful. This is who we are. You are the salt of the earth. 
So how do you reconcile that with uh, what got dumped in our Instagram, right? Uh, the truth is, I, I think Jesus was well aware of both. I kind of had a little bit of this epiphany last night as um, I was kind of left to my own for dinner. And uh, I had already rocked my robe for like 12 straight hours, so why stop now? And I looked in the freezer for the things that can be cooked at 425 for 20 minutes, and there were not many. And the one thing left was half a box of uh, soft pretzel bites, and I figured that should do it. Um, so I lay out some soft pretzel bites, and, and then comes like the most critical step in this piece, right? If, if you're a soft pretzel fan, you know this. It, it lives or it dies on this moment, is how you salt it, right? Now, a soft pretzel with no salt is worthless. And a soft pretzel that has been over-salted, have you had this experience? There's just not enough brushing off that will ever get you right, you know? And both scenarios end up in the trash. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a soft pretzel, some sporting event or whatever, and they're like, salt or no salt? And I'm like, I, well, what? Uh, salt, let's see how this goes, right? And then it comes and it's like, I, nobody could eat this. Not even like a deer could work this. You know, you just sort of, and it's gone. Uh, but no salt was also a total disappointment. And when salt dominates, all these beautiful attributes of it are lost. When salt dominates, it, it, it destroys. When salt takes over in this sort of way, it, it, it repels. And Jesus says it, it will ultimately just be thrown away. It will be discarded. People will find no good use in it. Uh, about 20 years ago now, almost this summer, 20 years, um, my wife, Nicole, and I are about to be married. And um, her dad, who can be a salty guy, um, he, uh, this may have even been during like a, a speech, but uh, he said to me, you know, Nicole, she's the oldest of four kids in her family, and she was the first to get married. And, um, and he said, here's the thing about Nicole, Justin, is that, uh, there's no one like her. And, and when she's good, our whole family is good. She raises the whole room. And when she's bad, our whole family is bad. <laughs> right? And, uh, and she's yours now. And I am thrilled to tell you that for 20 years, she has only ever always been all good and raised the room for all of us, right? It, it, this is what I believe Jesus is getting at, this same principle that you, you are the salt of the earth. And when it is good, there is nothing like it. The power to heal, the power to preserve, the power to comfort, to bring out flavor, to draw thirst. But when it is bad... It is destructive and painful and repelling. Jesus doesn't say someday you will become the salt of the earth or if you follow me, you could be salt of the earth. He's telling us who we are. This is who you are. You are salt of the earth. You, you need to respect kind of the power that you walk through this life with. 
This is who you are. Now, one of my fa- favorite preachers, a woman named Debbie Thomas out in San Francisco, she, uh, she put it this way uh, in this quote that I came across this week. Uh, she says, we, church, we, we are the salt of the earth. And we are that which will enhance or embitter. We will soothe or we will irritate. We will melt or we will sting. We will preserve or we will ruin. For better or for worse, we're the salt of the earth. And what we do with our saltiness, it matters. It matters a lot. Whether we want to or not, whether we notice or not, whether we're intentional about it or not, we spiritually impact the world that we live in. This is a humbling truth for us, whether we like it or not. Can I be honest with you? I don't necessarily like it, right? Um, There are plenty of times where I really do want to Karen out pretty hard, and I'm pretty good at it. What's, I don't know what the guy Karen is. There's a name. What do we call him? Somebody. Oh, I'm disappointed in you, church. I'm worried. Chad? I can Chad hard, man. Um, I, I want to Chad hard. And, and honestly, I get a little help that probably you don't, which is that I have this thing hanging out here that's like, you're a pastor, right? Like, dude, come on. At some point, they're going to ask you for your email, and then there, it's going to be this, like, you can't, like, cuss them out. Can't give somebody a finger. Can't get mad at the grocery store. This is, like, top reason why I want to move to, like, I don't know, how far do I have to move now? Like, uh, Hillsboro, right? It's like, if I was in Hillsboro, maybe I could be mean to people at the grocery store again, right? But it's not just me. You've got the same situation, that the odds are that people in your life, that they know who you identify with, kind of spiritual path that you're on, and and there's a real power in that, right? To heal or to wound, to draw forward or to repel. It matters so much how how we manage this calling in our life. There's not a week that goes by in, in my work where I don't sit down with someone who says something like, um, not a big fan of the church. Um, I got some real concerns about organized religion. I've only really seen harm and pain, right? And uh, it matters. People's lives shaped forever by the experience they have living in our orbit and bumping into us. And so this morning, I just want to offer us this reminder um, that you're salty one way or another. And my hope in my prayer church on Morgan is that, that we would be the kind of salt that brings out the goodness in this life rather than the kind of salt that the world looks at as a curse and longs to throw away. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.